Welcome to Energy Thinks, a podcast about how the oil and gas industry will lead into the energy future. I'm Tisha Schuler, your host and the CEO of Adamantine Energy. This season, I'm sitting down with thought leaders in and around the oil and gas industry to look at the competing trends of ESG action, anti-ESG pushback, all with an eye to what's coming next and how companies can chart a course that's consistent, but also nimble in a way that's not reactionary. So on today's show, I have a really uh, fun conversation with Robin Fielder, who is Executive Vice President of Low Carbon Strategy and Chief Sustainability Officer at Talus Energy. Robin received a BS in Petroleum Engineering from Texas A&M and is registered with the Board of Texas Professional Engineers. Before her start at Talus at the end of 2021, she was President, CEO, and a member of the Noble Midstream Partners Board of Directors with Chevron, which acquired Noble in 2020. Robin also served in leadership positions at Western Midstream and Anadarko. Last year, she was named one of Heart Energy's 25 Influential Women in Energy. You can learn more about Robin's biography in our show notes. Now, here's my conversation with Robin Fielder. Robin Fielder, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me on the Energy Thinks podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. So it's really exciting for me to get to talk to you because Talus is an upstream company. And right now in this world of decarbonization, sustainability efforts, your company is making real strides in carbon capture sequestration along the Gulf Coast. So I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about why the company decided to make that investment and why CCS versus the huge uh, toolbox of things that we could all be working on in this space. Yeah, sure. I think it's great to start with a little bit of how we got here. And so for Talos, we've, we've, had, we've had a company and employee-led ESG committee for the last, call it three or four years. We've got 10 different subcommittees, and it was really focused on all of the various ESG topics, everything from community relations and engagement to cybersecurity to waste management, and a lot of focus on energy transition. In fact, we had a whole subcommittee focused on how can Telos participate through an energy transition or evolution or transformation, pick your favorite adjective. And that's where our decarbonization business was born. Being an offshore exploration production company, we started looking at things like offshore wind and wave technologies, certainly something to think about. Being predominantly in the Gulf of Mexico, those are a little bit more challenged. The, the waves and the wind aren't quite as strong as they are, say, in the North Sea or even on the East Coast. As the team started to really dive in, we had some, some guys working nights and weekends. They started to realize that as we looked at carbon capture and sequestration, it was really the different value chain pieces that we do day in and day out, particularly on the subsurface being the sequestration portion of that chain that we bring to the table. We've got an expertise We've got a competitive advantage there, having some legacy data. And so the team started pursuing carbon capture and sequestration opportunities. Kind of at that same time, it was around coming out of the pandemic or I guess going into the pandemic in 2020, corporately, the, the company was thinking about how else can we position the company from a, a total, not just ESG, but sustainability framework, meaning how can we provide this long-term durable strategy that will attract new investors today but investors for longevity. And so that's where it also became apparent that having this team build out a decarbonization portfolio was going to be very meaningful. We, we fully embrace being an oil and gas producer 
and the, the need and demand for our product today. But over the next few decades, the, the demand may, may wane over time. Not saying it will. I think there's still a lot of growth and it's, it's a very reliable, affordable energy source. But as we're working on that third leg of the energy trilemma on the sustainability piece, building out a, a decarbonization portfolio became very interesting to us, not just on how we can, we can build out these CCS projects, but also how we can perhaps get access to some of these cleaner or even blue commodities. So as you think of us being an oil and natural gas producer today, if we can start to invest alongside of or even get access to some of these, call it maybe blue hydrogen or ammonia products, that would be very interesting to our investor base, whether it be on the equity side, the debt side, the insurance market, all these various counterparties we need. And so that's how we came about with the idea. And our first foray was in 2021, the state of Texas and the general land office had an RFP or a request for proposal for the very first offshore sequestration leasing in the United States. So just offshore in the state waters south of Beaumont, Port Arthur, we teamed up with another company, went and jointly bid on that proposal, and were named the selectee, the, uh, the awarded bidder. And so we, we went and negotiated the first of a kind and still to this date, the only offshore CO2 sequestration lease that exists in the United States. And the rest has kind of been history. We've been building out different partnerships and projects ever since. But it was really taking a little bit of who we are as Talos, as a, a founder-led company, some of that entrepreneurial culture saying, hey, we need to lean in, leverage our competitive advantages and expertise and build out a new portfolio or a new business line with its own portfolio. Well, Robin, you hit on a number of things that are so important for our audience. First, I love it that you have the this employee-led ESG that clearly is comprehensive with 10 subcommittees. And then you talked about a total sustainability strategy. In our work, we, we're talking right now about real sustainability, this, this space where aspiration meets pragmatism. And you mentioned um, the importance of it being durable and also like in your core competencies, which you know we talk about as oil and gas adjacent. And so you you really hit you hit on all the things that are so important to a real sustainability strategy. And because you did this first project in Texas, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how, as an organization, you navigate the politics. So we're all in this world where we've been under pressure for a decade to, to have like very aggressive action on climate and decarbonization. And then there's this, you know, within the last year, this anti-woke, anti-ESG pressure. We see it in states like Texas and a number of conservative states. And it really is creating some existential challenges for companies that are trying to do both their core business and their energy transformation strategies. So how are you thinking about that? How are you navigating it? Any hints of what's working for you in that space? Yeah, sure. I think it's it's a great comment and certainly something worth diving in on because you're right. You've got you've got both ends of the spectrum. It's it, there's a lot of highly politicized viewpoints. And we have to make sure we really stick to what our strategy is, how we see the world and, and, and get our vision across, right? So if we feel like we can build that energy company of tomorrow, that's sort of the theme of our ESG reporting and sustainability reporting. We have to explain what that means to us and, and how we can do that. But I think as, as you think about all the political dynamics right now, the anti-ESG, it also means being very cautious and not to overpromise. So for us, you know, as you start thinking about on the environmental or the climate related goals, we've had a, a scope one emission reduction goal for the last few years. 
Um, those are our operated facilities in our control, things that we can drive down, whether it be, it's up for all greenhouse gases, so methane and CO2 from combustion. So those are things that we're doing. We have an attainable goal. We've, we've, we're looking at restretching it now that we've added some new assets with our NVIN acquisition earlier this year. So those are things I think all companies should, should be thinking about and pursuing. Scope 2 is, is usually pretty workable, too, depending on your situation and how where your power sources come from. You know, in lease buildings, sometimes you're subject to your lessor and what their um, energy efficiency plans are for that building. But as we think about our offshore operations, there's opportunities there, too. But the, you know, the the big one hanging out there that a lot of folks are thinking a lot about today are, are scope three. So scope three is really re- pertains to everything else, but a lot of focus for energy companies is on the end use of our products. And so we are an upstream focused company. We sell our product into a pipeline that goes back to the beach. Beyond that, I couldn't tell you exactly where it all goes, but I know where most of it's being used is a, a lot of these industrial facilities all along the Texas and Louisiana Gulf Coast. So as you think about what we're doing, we're building out CCS as a service, meaning we're going to help large industrials all along the U.S. Gulf Coast decarbonize and and basically have a home for that CO2 where they can permanently retire it. In essence, we're helping the indirectly address our scope three, right? We're helping those end users of our products. And so I think that's a good middle of the ground without over committing to a net zero goal. Right now, that's very challenging for energy companies in general, because you've got, as you look internationally and, and in Europe, the science-based targets and initiatives group won't even officially accept commitments from energy producers today. Uh, they will not allow you to use any offsets for your scope three. So if you produce a lot of hydrocarbons, it's impossible for you to ever get there. And so you have to recognize where that middle ground is. Yes, we can certainly have ambitions to reduce all of it, but not overcommitting. And, you know, the other piece of that is we've seen it come from the SEC as well. So the SEC last year put out some proposed climate disclosure thoughts. It it hasn't been regulated yet. We're waiting to see an update to that proposal. I have yet to see it. And I think it's just they're thinking through all of the the ramifications of it. There's a lot of legal implications if you're now requiring people to report all of these emissions. But I do think there was some interesting sentiment around it. I think the point of it was to prevent folks from getting out over their skis or even greenwashing. But also, you know, if folks are are saying they're going to decarbonize, there's usually a cost associated with that. So kind of like we do with asset retirement obligations, we put a dollar amount that we're setting aside to permanently abandon our facilities, people are thinking about, okay, what are the dollars I'm going to start putting aside to decarbonize my facilities? And so I think a little bit of disclosure around that is not not necessarily a bad thing. I think that's helpful. So, you know, the way we're thinking about it is we we want to be forward thinking. We again we're an independent company, we're founder-led, it means we're we're very entrepreneurial, but we we don't want to lean too far out there knowing that there's going to be a lot of pushback. We certainly don't want to get caught saying we're greenwashing, but you know, you want to try to show that you're doing better. We're, we're engineers and scientists and problem solvers. So we love to do these kind of projects and, and solve big challenges. So I think if you focus on that, get that as part of your messaging and your strategy, really keep you in that that safe place, but also hopefully allow you to continue to attract capital and partners and human resources. Well, Robin, you're creating a lot of nice continuity because the podcast right before you, our guest talked about the SEC disclosure rule and what she thinks is coming. And one of the things that had been surprising to me was she had worked for the SEC during their public comment and engagement period. And she talked about 
the the drive for companies to have some certainty, you know, even though there's a full range of spectrum of support for scope one or scope two or scope three levels of disclosure. And I think you're speaking to some important consistencies around that in terms of how companies are thinking about and engaging with their commitments, with their actions, because this fear of, I think a very reasonable fear of being accused of greenwashing does keep some companies from even getting started. Whereas having some sincerity to your efforts, some modesty in your commitments, these are things that that help companies navigate that. So I think you made some really great suggestions and I want to see if we can pull out any more lessons learned because you are quite a bit ahead of many of our listeners companies in their journey around CCS or other decarbonization initiatives. And what we're hearing is one of the biggest challenges is running a base business and essentially building a totally new business. Although it uses some core capabilities, the risk models are different. The business models are different. Some of the skill sets are different. Anything else you've learned along the way that could help our listeners accelerate their success and and their journey? Sure. And it, I mean, I love the way you described it because I always pitch it as we're, we're incubating a startup and doing that inside a public company. And I even remind my, my low carbon team, you know, right now we're pre-revenue, so we're just overhead. So we, you know, got to get a lot of love to the base business that's delivering the cash flow and allowing us to do all those fabulous things. But it's also, like you said, ma- managing governance. So as we think about our board and making sure we're not over-promising and committing, having those discussions in the boardroom is very important too. And so some lessons on that, I would say, is you know getting people thinking about it early. I think it's it's a good practice in any kind of managing up situation that you know you drip new ideas early and introduce them early and often. So as they start to mature, people are having more time to think about and you're not springing brand new concepts on folks, whether it be you know internally but externally as well. So as Talos has been primarily focused in the offshore Gulf of Mexico, as we're developing some of these new projects, we're moving back on shore. So we've got some leases on shore. So a lot of it is getting back out in front of the local communities. So early stakeholder engagement. We've been pretty intentional on some of our partners that we've chosen on some of our projects that are pursuing other CCS projects around the world. So you've got not just technical expertise there that they bring to the table and experiences, but also on the stakeholder engagement side too. So how you go, who you go and talk to first, and what order how you interface with the local communities, how you talk to the local officials. It's all very important and you got to do it do it right or you can very easily stub your toe and, and kind of derail the project. So that's been a key lesson. You know, the other thing is new is slow. So when you're negotiating first of a kind leases, like that very first CO2 lease I mentioned just offshore, uh, the state of Texas there, it took a lot longer than we thought. You know, we, we started with what we traditionally know as oil and gas mineral leases and said, you know what, we're going to have to rip this up and start with a new blank form. So now we actually have a poor space lease and we can leverage that. But charting some new waters takes a little bit of additional time and effort. You know, we don't shy away from that. We, again, have that have that spirit where, you know, we like to try something new. But I think I would just advise folks that it's, you know, Think how long it's going to take and probably double it. It's going to take a lot longer. So as you're building into your schedules or even just guiding externally or internally, you know, your management or boards, think about um, giving yourself that extra buffer because, you know, new takes a little bit longer as everyone, including our potential customer base, they're all trying to get their arms and heads around these projects and thinking about how they're going to make their large capital investments too. 
There's a number of things you said that I really enjoy, but one I want to put an exclamation point on, which is love to the base business, because um, a lot of companies that have new energy business or low carbon ventures, the traditional businesses feel sometimes a little like left behind, like all the sexy fun stuff is happening over there. But I'd say now that these businesses are getting farther along, a recurring theme is like the base businesses where the, the cash is being generated. And I just, so just a shout out to all our, our base business operations folks who are still keeping the wheels turning. <laughs> Absolutely. We, we need you and appreciate you. Exactly. Exactly. And it makes the rest of this possible. Uh, one of the things I love to tell skeptics of our industry is you want an industry that's making money because that's an industry that's investing in the future. And so I think that, that that's a, just a wonderful point that you made. Another point you made that I think really resonates with what we're seeing is this idea of early engagement on decarbonization projects. A lot of people that are unfamiliar with the oil and gas industry think they're going to get a pass. So if they're like a CO2 business untethered from historic oil and gas operations, they're going in and and, and banding about words like eminent domain, which is like the first thing that's going to kill your, your trust in a community. And so I uh, love it that you really put the emphasis on that. And you gave us a new one too. New is slow. And that's really... Really, I think it's really interesting, and I think it's really consistent with the also the changing expectations we're seeing of communities for all projects. Like, there's just a different level of engagement that's that's happening. So that's really interesting. So tell us, Robin, where do you see these efforts going next? Like, what's coming for Talus, and and what what things can you share that are that are on your horizon, whether aspirational or or actual. Um, sure. So when we got started, we were really looking at how can we go out, identify some of the very best core space closest to these large industrial corridors so we can kind of build it and they will come almost mentality where we're going we're gonna to develop a, a hub project and we'll attract all the customers. Well, you know, the good news was that was pre-Inflation Reduction Act that was signed last year. Since we now have all these clean energy incentives that have been enhanced, it's much more attractive to do these type of projects in the United States. And what we're finding is particularly a lot of potential international customers or even facility developers are coming to us saying, hey, you guys have kind of built a name for yourself. Can you help us not only work on a project, but help us site select? Can you help us locate the best storage space knowing that you know, we have these three criteria. Perhaps they want to be near the water if they're exporting internationally, or perhaps they just want to be near a certain market, depending on what product they're delivering. It might be steel, it might be fertilizer, it might be power. So that's what's really exciting for us. I think starting with that customer up front with that project is it's a little bit different approach, but it's a different way to tackle it. And since we're a smaller independent, we don't necessarily, everything doesn't have to be at a mega hub scale. Not everything needs to be a mega project. In fact, we've been very intentional to bring partners into those so we can have, again, our own diversification within the, the low carbon portfolio. Uh, but we can certainly go and tackle some of these more point source type projects where you're single customer focused on helping them develop a solution for their facility. So I think that's what's going to be next for us is continuing some of those partnerships, seeing how we can get involved and maybe, again, investing alongside of some of those projects and perhaps getting into what, what I call the blue economy. So as we think about all of these cleaner, new, newer, or even just decarbonized products that everyone's seeking, you know, everyone's looking to reduce that CI. At the, when you think about the end users, you can go on Amazon now and see your carbon intensity score on the products you're buying. Or even when you book a flight these days, I've noticed it'll tell you your CO2 intensity. 
there's a, there's a real desire to, to generate some of these offsets. So if we can help build some of that, I think that's that's what's really going to continue the growth and the excitement in this business, and also hopefully attract investors as we're we're starting to think about bringing in capital providers at the Talos Low Carbon Solutions level. So not just you know funding all this off the Talos Energy balance sheet. That's really exciting. And I hadn't heard that yet before these customer driven project solutions. But it, of course, as you know, as you explained it, it makes a lot of sense. And it's an exciting and unanticipated result of being ahead of the curve as the Inflation Reduction Act really starts changing the landscape. So that's going to be really interesting. And you mentioned Amazon and your airlines and this focus on carbon intensity. And in my conversations with guests and in my day-to-day life, I vacillate wildly between being just totally optimistic that like we as a society and we as an oil and gas industry can engage in a, in a leadership way that's going to help reduce carbon emissions and dramatically decarbonize society. And then sometimes I, you know, and then you see projections of oil and gas demand, you know, importantly continuing to grow to meet a growing population around the world and, and f- you know, four over a billion people economies that are still developing. And then I get a little uh, discouraged about just the scale of the challenge ahead. So I'm curious, Robin, how do you think about, like, what's your leadership and, and personal approach to these questions of like, are we going to be able to decarbonize? Are we not going to be able to decarbonize? And the leadership role of oil and gas industry in that. I think it's great to ask these questions. It's great to look at the forecast and the models, but recognize they're just forecasts and models. But also take a little bit of a step back, look at where we've come from, look at all the changes and the huge technological achievements we've made as a sector over the years. I mean, just the the advent of horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing, uh, but even the advances we've made in the deep water technology and some of the developments of these, these mega projects around the globe. It's been very exciting. I always tell people energy is really, we're a technology industry. If you really look at what we do day in and day out and how we leverage things like seismic data and even building in things like algorithms and some artificial intelligence to allow us to work a little faster or process quicker, I think there's a lot of cool things that can be done. We've already shown we can we can go extract liquids out of rock we thought we never could as we think about oil shale. And so I think it's just the next part of our evolution. I think it's exciting that we can continue to see these technological advances. You know, some of these projects will be very capital intensive and costly, but I also have seen time and time again, as we get into new basins or new technologies, I mean, even demonstrating renewables, you very quickly start showing and demonstrating how you can come down the cost curve. So yes, I think there's there's a lot of uncertainty as we look ahead as what does that demand look like? Will we ever get and meet our climate goals? But I have a lot of optimism on just our, our creativity, our ability to go and solve big challenges together. And I, I think that's what's exciting is I think there's a big recognition that for things like climate change and even just within CCS, there's not any one particular company or entity that's suited to do all of it. It's going to take a lot of collaboration and partnerships. And it's really been refreshing to see how much of that has already taken place. All these new alliances, whether it be a technical alliance or or more financial partnerships have been made, really showing that people are willing to work together and and not always be so competitive as we've really been historically as we think about traditional energy. So that's very encouraging to me. And, And I think as people see that, we're attracting a lot of really great talent into these parts of our business. 
hopefully that'll also open some eyes to some of the traditional energy opportunities too, once they get there and realize all the cool technology we're working with. It'll make it better for everyone. You know, we can continue to produce traditional energies, introduce new energies, but make them all, you know, cleaner and more environmentally friendly and just better for everyone. I love building off the idea of just the technical innovation of the industry is just extraordinary. And and just in the U.S., we've transformed geopolitics because of our energy innovation. So I love that perspective. But what you also added that I hadn't thought of is this idea of together being greater than the sum of our parts. So suddenly you have these collaborations across new tech and startups, traditional companies that know how to work at this kind of scale. And then now all these hubs and, you know, customer engagements in new ways. So you paint an optimistic picture. So we're going to, I'm going to end the day back on the techno climate optimism uh, bandwagon. That is where I prefer to spend my time. So I have one final question for you, Robin, and I'd love for you to tell our audience what you're most optimistic about. I think it kind of relates back to that last comment. It's, it's not just I think we're going to have a ton of growth in, call it energy transition space, or again, whatever, however you want to think about it, climate investing. But I think it, it draws a lot of attention back to all kinds of energy. Hopefully, we're attracting more students into different energy degree programs. I think it's it's very important that we've got the right technical expertise. We've got the, the human resource of human capital going into these different fields maybe even in some environmental engineering or, or more sustainability focused type opportunities. Again, if we're going to solve big challenges, it needs big solutions, which means it needs a lot of great minds on it. And so I, I'm really optimistic that we can repaint that view of the energy industry. It's had some negative uh, connotation around it historically. And frankly, over the last several decades, we haven't done that great of a job as traditional energy folks on, on marketing that. We've just kind of gone by and done our job and delivered the reliability that we we all enjoy here as in developed worlds, but really taking some ownership of it and, and being proud of what we deliver day in and day out and knowing we can continue to do it ever better, but we need those folks who can do it. So I think, I think that's what I'm most optimistic about is getting that next generation is going to be way smarter than me and have a lot more they can leverage on the, the data science side as well. So I'm very excited to see what that generation will be able to come up with and all the cost efficiencies and, and new cool new technologies they'll bring to the table. I think there's no more exciting field to go in right now than working in the oil and gas industry's work on providing energy to a growing population while decarbonizing. It's one of the coolest areas I think anyone could invest their their career's life energy. So on that note, Robin, thank you for investing your career and life energy into this work as well. I'm so glad to have had you on the Energy Thinks podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. That's our episode for today. Thanks so much to Robin for joining me. One thing that I found really interesting was this idea that new is slow. And of course, just this contrast that we are all living through of trying to do more faster and just the reality of how challenging it is to get things approved and built right now. So that was fun. And I would like to know what you enjoyed. And I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review us. It helps other people find our podcast. I'd like to thank Adon Rubio for making Energy Thinks possible. And if you'd like to know more about our work at Adamantine, check us out at energythinks.com. Until next time, I'm Tisha Schuler, wishing you and yours happiness, prosperity, and good health. <music>